in Exodus chapter 33, we'll be reading verses 7 through 11. The word of our Lord says, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door And all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. But his servant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Let us pray. Oh God, without you we are not able to please you. So we ask that you would mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We were created for community. In fact, if you want to know uh, what drives me theologically as a pastor, you know that I love the works of C.S. Lewis. You know that I read the works of John Wesley. You know that I love ancient Christian stuff. You know that uh, some of you might know my favorite ancient theologian is Irenaeus. Uh, But if you want to know what really has shaped my theology... More than any other thing, it was actually a book titled Created for Community. It was written uh, by none other than a Baptist, Stanley J. Grins, and it was a completely world-shaping, world-rocking, world-shifting type of book for me. But the fact is, we were created for community. And when I say that we're created for community, I mean that we're created to live in relationship with the triune God. We're called to live in relationship with one another. And ultimately, we're called to live in relationship with all of creation. God has created this world for us to relate to, for us to live in, for us to enjoy, for us to, uh, of course, be stewards of, but also for us to be inhabitants of and to enjoy. And so we're created not just to know God, but by knowing Him, to rightly know other people, to rightly know ourselves, and to rightly know the world around us. We were created for community. We were built for relationships. And you've heard me say before, most of you, that uh, the, 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 single most, the single most simple, the single most uh, easily overlooked emblem of this idea that we're created for others and we're created for relationships is something we typically keep covered. Our belly buttons. 
Now, my only problem with the text we read is that it said that Joshua was the son of Nun. He had a mom and a dad. Um, Nun, of course, is a name in UN. But uh, we, we were created in such a way that we are built for relationships. We, have, we, we come from mommies and daddies. And we find ourselves in webs of relationships throughout our lives. We've got crazy aunts and uncles. And we've got spoiled brats, little nieces and nephews. We've got little grubby kids. And we've got friends. And we've got best friends. And we've got old college roommates. We've got all these different relationships in our lives. Because we were created for that sort of thing. And the Bible even tells us how we're to relate to our enemies. You know, even the, the relationship you have with an enemy, it's a relationship. It's two people relating to one another. We were created, the Bible tells us, in God's image. And God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God was not lonely and by Himself before He created us. There is an eternal Father who has an eternal Son. And together they enjoy an eternal relationship with a third person, the Spirit. We were created to be free. We were created to relate to other, other people out of that freedom. And the sad tale of Scripture is that that image of God in us has been broken. In the fall of Adam and Eve, back in the book of Genesis, we find that even immediately as God comes into the garden and says, where are you, Adam? Adam says, oh, I, I was just hiding. And God says, well, why were you hiding? What have you done? Now, I think of that not in terms strictly of you disobeyed me, but I think of it in terms much more of a, a cosmic sense. What have you done to yourself? What have you done to this world? Because immediately Adam says, it wasn't me. It was that woman. Not only that, it was that woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Immediately these, these relationships are torn to pieces. They are mangled. The image is broken. But the image is restored when Jesus steps onto the scene. And notice what he does. He comes to a group of fishermen. And he comes to a tax collector named Levi. And he comes to these folks that are just doing their thing in life. And he says, follow me. Don't hide from me. Don't run from me. Don't point fingers at others. Follow me. And he invites them into a community together. These 12 disciples are going to live life together for three years. They, he's pulling together a church to live in fellowship together. To restore that broken and lost image of God in their midst. The image is ultimately fulfilled, the scripture tells us, in 
the book of Revelation at the end of time when God is putting all things together and He declares that He is the one who makes all things new. He is the one that can restore all things. He is the one that can put back together this world that has been broken. And He calls together people from every tribe and every tongue, from every nation and from every people group. He calls them all together into His family. Again, Bringing them into community together. And so God does not leave the image that was broken alone. He comes to restore it and He comes to fulfill it. Here we read this little uh, vignette in the lives of Moses and this man we're introduced to named Joshua, the son of Nun. And what's fascinating about the text is that we read that Joshua is Moses' apprentice. He is his right-hand man. He is the one in whom Moses is investing himself. And he's the one that the Scriptures will tell us that Yahweh is raising up to lead Israel when Moses departs from the scene. And so Moses is spending these years investing his life into this young man named Joshua. He is pouring himself into Joshua. He is preparing him. And in a sense, Moses, through Joshua, is preparing to leave a legacy. He's preparing to leave a a, a name for himself, in a proper sense. He's preparing to leave a name for himself in his servant Joshua. In fact, when Joshua becomes Israel's leader, uh, the, the Scriptures compare him back to Moses. That Israel followed him just as they had followed Moses. And so, not only is Moses investing himself in Joshua, but Joshua is in a reciprocal sense investing himself in Moses. Because Joshua is the one who's willing to take the baton and continue running. Joshua is the one who's willing to say, Moses, I will confirm the investment of leadership you have made in my life. I will confirm the legacy that you have built by the way I lead these people after you're gone. Throughout this little vignette, you have, uh, you have the repetition of all of the people being influenced by the behavior of these two men. Moses is leaving the camp and he goes out to this tent that he set up that he's called the tabernacle of meeting. You've got the tabernacle, the plans for what would be Israel's tabernacle uh, being laid out in these chapters and those that follow. But Moses has set up this tent and it's outside the camp and the text tells us that when Moses is leaving the camp, the, the camp to go meet with God in that tabernacle that all of Israel is standing in their doorways watching him as he goes. And he goes out to the tent and the pillar of cloud comes and rests at that tent. And all of Israel begins to worship God. And it tells us that when Moses would go back out of the tent and would return to the camp that Joshua would stay there. And Throughout this text, you keep seeing that all the people see the pillar. All the people watch Moses. They watch Joshua. They watch toward that tent. 
All of Israel begins to worship. All of Israel is waiting in their doorways. Moses and Joshua and the, the, the leadership that they're showing to Israel is not something that is vain. It is not something that is going to pass away. They are influencing all of the tribes of Israel because of their faithfulness to God and because of their willingness to meet with God. And it tells us that Moses meets with Yahweh face to face. The friend of God. Moses was pouring his life into this young man, Joshua. And as someone who's in ministry now, I can think back over the years of my upbringing. And I can think of those who I had no idea what they were doing, but they were literally pouring their lives into my life. Shaping me, shaping what I would see as the call to pastoral ministry, shaping my, not just my understanding of God, but my understanding of working and interacting with others. I can remember, uh, David and I talk about this every once in a while, I can remember leaving Sunday school class as a, I mean, I was probably eight years old when I first started doing it. I'd leave Sunday school class soon, I'd wait till Sunday school was over, uh, but I would leave uh, some of my friends would go, uh, would, would go to a, the gym and they would be hanging out shooting hoops waiting for church to begin. Our church had a, had a really nice gym. And I would leave and I'd go to the fellowship hall and I would uh, grab a cup of coffee and I'd pour you know, 18 creamers in it and 15 packs of sugar in it. See, they were, my friends were out working out playing basketball. I was sitting around eating all the cream and sugar. That's why I was a fat kid growing up. But, um, but I would sit there with, with all these elderly people, folks who had left their Sunday school classes, and, and I'd be sitting there among them, and they'd be talking to me, and they would be you know, treating me like one of their own. They were pouring their lives into me. They were spending time with me. They were investing themselves in me. The fact is, if you're not pouring yourself into your family first then you're missing out. If you're not pouring your life into your family, you're missing out. There is a, a bankruptcy that the church is encountering because the church has expected, the people of the church have expected the church, the leadership of the church, to disciple their families for them. For generations now, at least since the at least since the 60s probably even since the 50s families have expected that discipleship is something that happens in the sanctuary or in the youth group room or in the Sunday school classroom i mean we we think that uh, we think that we disciple our kids by sending them to camp and us husbands think that we that our wives get what they need by sending them off to a ladies' refresher. And they think that we get what's coming to us by sending us off to a men's retreat. But we think that that's what discipleship is. It's the religious professionals holding meetings, holding Bible studies, praying, that sort of thing. But if we're not pouring our lives into our families, we are missing out. And we're, what we're going to find is we're going we're to have families that are bankrupt, spiritually. We 
We live in a culture that just moves from, from hit to hit of spiritual experience. We think Sunday is where I get charged up so I can make it through another week. And if Sundays aren't working, I'm going to go to this conference and I'm going to get another hit. And I'm going to get charged up for a few months. But we're called to pour ourselves into others. And that begins with family. But beyond the family, if you're not pouring your life into someone else outside of your immediate family, you're missing out. There is a stagnancy that develops in our lives when we do not allow grace to move through us and out toward others. You know, there's a, there's a world of difference between an old stagnant pond and a flowing stream. All throughout the scriptures in the Old and New Testament, you have allusions to living waters. Jesus promised it. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. You'll find living waters. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have this, this phrase, living waters, being referenced. And it's talking about water that is moving. It's talking about the waters of a stream where the, where the water is alive, where it's refreshing, where it's moving along. And then you've got this other image of an old stagnant pond where there's scum building up. In fact, one of the promises of, uh, of the prophets in the Old Testament is the Dead Sea, which is so salty, there's nothing that can grow in it. Andrew has seen it firsthand. Did you get in the water? Got out there and float? You can float in the water in the Dead Sea because it is so salty and you can see the bottom of it because there is nothing living in it. But the prophets in the Old Testament say the Dead Sea is going to turn into this lively place. It's going to turn into almost a beach resort with exotic fish all through it and trees popping up everywhere. It's going to turn into a place of living water. And grace, when God is pouring His grace into our lives, it must find expression outside of our lives toward others or else we become spiritually stagnant. I refer to it as spiritual obesity. Constantly taking in. Nobody laughed about the obesity thing. Spiritual obesity, come on. We're constantly taking in and we're never giving out. We're constantly feasting and we're never fasting. We're constantly consuming, but we're never spending. Now we're spending in the consuming, but we're never spending out of ourselves. And all we're doing is just filling up our chubby bellies. I was going to be a little meaner with that. We're filling up our chubby bellies on all this spiritual nourishment and we're plopped down on, on God's spiritual couch and we're not doing anything for others. But grace is intended to come through our lives and move on into the lives of others. And that cannot happen and will not happen unless we say, you know what? I'm going to invest myself in other people. Now I want to encourage you. When you think about investing yourself in others, don't think big, think small. 
Don't think, how am I going to invest myself in others? Think, how am I going to invest myself in another? One person. Jesus chose 12. There were three specifically, the inner circle that he really poured himself into, Peter, James, and John. But I want to encourage you, think of one person outside of your immediate family, someone who does not know Christ, or if they know Christ, it doesn't seem to be having that much effect on their lives. And that's going to take a little bit of judgment on your part. I don't want you to lift yourself up and, and think, oh, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be God to this person. Don't get a Messiah complex and don't slip off in that spiritual pride that we were warning about last week. But, but think prayerfully, who is something that I can pour myself into? Someone that I can influence for the gospel. I'm going to warn you that there are some typical ways that we often fail in making room in our lives for other people. Because if we're going to be investing ourselves in others, then we've got to make room for them. We talked last week about how we, we fail to make room in our life for God. And some of these are kind of run along those, those same parallels. But one of the ways that we often fail to make room in our lives for others is we're quite simply too busy. That sounds like last week, and it in some ways is. We are too busy. I say it all the time, you say it all the time. I don't have time, I'm swamped. Make time. You will never have time until you make time. I remember when, uh, um, when Lindsay and I were dating, and we, ha- I think we had just, yeah, we had just gotten engaged. I was talking with Josh Sher. He was an older student at Wesley College. Uh, I think he had since gra- he had graduated at that point, but he was still hanging around campus. And um, uh, I remember he was talking with me about marriage, and he, like I had, had married at a younger age, and he was talking about how. Sometimes you've just got to ignore all the voices because others are like, man, you're too young to get married. What are you thinking? You know, you guys need to get out. You need to, you know, establish yourself in a career, maybe buy a house, you know, pay off that mortgage a little bit, and then you can get married down the road. And he said, you know what? It's never a convenient time to get married. I've since come to realize it's never a convenient time to, to have kids either. You know, you can always be better prepared. You can always be more ready. You can always have more money saved up. And in the same way, you know, you will always be too busy for other people until you make time for them. You're always going to be swamped. Every week, you can be overly busy unless you make time for others. Another way that we often fail to make room in our lives for others is we're too high-minded. And, and when I say we're too high-minded, I'm not talking about we think too highly of ourselves. I'm, thinking, I'm saying we think too highly of what it means to make room for others. We think I've got to put together a party or an elegant dinner for all the guests to come. We think far too big about making room for others. Sometimes we make room for others simply by grabbing a cup of coffee with them. 
Sometimes we make room for others by saying, hey, we're going to order some pizzas. You guys want to come over to the house? It doesn't have to be some big formal thing where we're planning for a few months to have somebody over so that we can try to invest in them. Now, you know your friends, you know your coworkers, you know the things that they'll appreciate. Trust me, you throw a pizza on the table, I'm there. You know, so that may not work with all of your friends. But what I do want to encourage you to do is don't overthink making room for other people. It's the same way with parenting. You know, as a dad, I can sit around all the time thinking, oh boy, we really ought to put together a camping trip. That'd be, that'd be so cool just to spend some time with the kids. Hey dad, can we go play wolf ball? No, 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 I'm, I'm thinking here. I'm thinking, oh man, maybe in a couple of weeks we could... We could, we could get, oh, we've got to go to the, we'll go to the sporting goods store. We'll get a little, you know, a little outdoor, uh, outdoor, uh, little eye that we can, we can cook some chili over. And we're thinking out these big elaborate plans all the time. We're wasting time that we could be spending with them. And sometimes we're so busy thinking about all the big things we're going to do to reach out to somebody when we could just be reaching out to them. Just call. Say, hey, I've got, I, I've got some time this week to get together. Do you have any, any time to get together? Another way we often fail to make room in our lives for others is quite simply, we are just too self-absorbed. Others? What? Lord, I'm, I'm just trying to read my Bible and pray a little bit each week. What do you mean I, I need to be thinking about others? I can't imagine I was anywhere as busy or have ever been anywhere as busy as Moses was. I mean, being the, the sole leader of Israel as they are leaving Egyptian captivity, getting them across the Red Sea, up on Mount Sinai, and you've got all of these knuckleheads dancing around a golden calf, and you're the man. You're the one that everybody's coming to for all their troubles. Notice in the passage we looked at last week, when he went up on the mountain, he had to delegate to others where every family that had a complaint was going to go because I got to be up there for 40 days. Now all of your problems, you can't bring them to me because you've been bringing them to me and I'm going to be up there. But you bring them to these guys. They'll take care of it. Now you imagine being Moses with everybody in Israel's hundreds of thousands of people's problems Coming to you. Meanwhile, you're trying to tell all the, the priests, you're trying to set up a priestly system. Alright. You're trying to also get together the woodworkers and the bronze workers and the fabric workers to, pres- to, to prescribe for them what the tabernacle is to look like. No, it can't be made out of gopher wood. It's got to be a kale wood. But gopher wood was the ark. The kale wood's for the tabernacle. All of that work is resting on Moses, but he still 
finds time to invest himself in Joshua. And he finds time also to be an influence on the whole community. Not just in sorting out their problems. But also in living a life of faithfulness with God. In letting them see him. As he remains faithful to God in meeting in prayer and meeting in worship. God created us to have an influence on others. And unfortunately, unfortunately for us and unfortunately for the church as a whole, we are far too often too self-consumed. We've got too much going on for us. We got, we're always thinking, oh, I'll invite them down the road. We'll have them over at some point. Or, oh, man, we're really putting together something for them. Or, we're just too vague. You know, we, we think inviting someone to church is saying, hey, you guys ought to come to church sometime. Told you a thousand times, nobody ever just shows up to your house one evening at 6 p.m. and says, Hey, you guys said we ought to come over for dinner sometime. We thought tonight was as good a night as any. In the same way, 90% of the people, and I'm just making that statistic up, you know, 87% of statistics are made up on the fly, right? Not, most folks aren't just going to come knocking on this door. On a Sunday morning and say, oh yeah, no, I, I, you guys mentioned I ought to come to church sometime. Typically, when a guest shows up, it's because someone has invited them that week. Hey, why don't you come to church this Sunday? And I've told you guys this before as well. That one out of every four specific invitations that you give to somebody to come to church will come through. So that means if four of us ask a guest to come to church this morning, we ought to at least have one guest in here. I wonder if we were to ask, hey, everybody raise your hand if you invite a guest to come to church this morning. I wonder how many hands would go up. Would there be four? Inviting folks to church is just one way. That's sometimes the easy way. That's the easy way to invest yourself in others, is inviting them to church. Because you don't have to carve out time for that. Just invite them. You can invite them on Facebook, guys. Just as God wants us to make room in our lives for Him, to live in relationship with Him, He wants us to make room in our lives for others. So the relationship we have with Him can begin to influence those other relationships in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we pray.